Well, today we're continuing with our walk through the story of God as presented to us in the Bible. And we've been doing quite a trip. Today, actually, we're going to do a small section. We're going to deal with the entire book of Judges and First and Second Samuel. So it should be a short time together, and we'll enjoy it as we walk together through those insights we have. You know, previously we talked about creation and the fall, and we discovered how as God provided free will to men and women, that they uh, corrupted it, misused it, brought sin into the world, and those poor choices invaded our entire earth and all the people of the earth. Then we walked through the issues of of the flood. We talked about how... uh, Noah was involved there. How many of you gone to see this film, Noah? Have you seen that yet? How many of you have seen that yet? If you get a chance, you might want to see it. I heard it's kind of in your face, so I haven't watched it myself. Uh, there's a great movie out also called God is Not Dead. It's, it's interesting how we're seeing a production of biblical endeavors taking place right now in our theaters because they think that you guys have money and you're willing to spend it. Okay? So that's what's going on, but you can get some great insights by a number of actually very, very excellent movies that are out that try to encourage us concerning uh, the Word of God and what it teaches us there. Uh, So following uh, the situation with Noah, we find Abraham called by God. And this is the first inkling we begin to have that God intends to produce for the world a nation through which he's going to provide for us his own son. So this is the process, beginning to get a picture. She says, Abraham, through you, I will bring forth through your line a son. In fact, I'm going to produce for you a nation, a nation that will be incredibly large. In fact, a nation that will be larger than anything we've ever seen on the entire earth. And of course, he's speaking not just the nation of Israel, but also all the people that will respond uh, to Jesus and recognize who he is and how he can work uh, in their lives. So God establishes Israel as a nation, and in order to do that, he actually pushes them into Egypt, and they're forced to stay there. They become slaves. They produce an enormous amount of children to the, to the point where they're in the millions and millions of people, and Egypt is getting worried about it because they're becoming larger than Egypt itself. So in the process of establishing them as slaves, Over 430 years later, Moses shows up, calls them out of Egypt. They are then produced a a, a journey that they begin to walk on. And that journey we all know about. And the journey is one which they go through the Sinai. And they find themselves at a place called uh, a particular mountain that God God has established himself on. When they get to this mountain with Moses, God provides for them something that we refer to the law or the Ten Commandments. But not only does does he do that, he begins to try to explain to them that he desires to have a relationship with them, that they're to be a special nation, a nation called out to declare to all the people of the world who God is and how he works. He provides for them the Ten Commandments as a set of of laws that are to follow and to be guided by, and he sets up a sacrificial system by which they can deal with their sins, their guilt, their shame, their struggle. And he says, all these things I'm putting together so that you can understand who I am and how I work, and you can begin to share that with all people. He established something we call the Passover. And the Passover is the predominant event in the life of all Jewish people. Because it reminds them that they were taken out of Egypt by the power of God, but through the sacrifice of firstborn sons and firstborn animals. 
And that's constantly in their forefront. It's constantly in their thinking and their ideas. So that when Jesus comes, you would think they're going to go, Aha! The firstborn, only son of God, dies for us so that we might be removed from the penalty of sin and have a relationship with God forever. But of course, that only happens to a small group of people in Israel, what Paul refers to as a, as a remnant of people that respond to Jesus at a later date. But the Passover was established. Moses begins to help them understand how they need to live, and the sacrificial system is set up that we walk through with the tabernacle here. The tabernacle provides us a picture of how God works and desires to deal with our sins, how we can have a relationship with Him. And step by step by step, we finally find ourselves in the Holy of Holies, which is a statement of the presence of God, where He can speak to you and encourage you and guide you and lead you and help you to understand who you are and what you were called to be. All right? So that's how far we've gone so far. So we've got to Moses, we've got the tabernacle. Now Moses dies. He's not allowed by God to enter into the land of Israel. He never gets to experience the promised land that God has provided for all of his people. Instead, someone by the name of Joshua leads them in. And Joshua is a, is a type, you might say, of Jesus himself, able to lead into the land. The law which Moses provided would never be able to bring the people into the land of God or into the kingdom of God, which is what Israel represents. It's the kingdom of God. It's the place where God resides. It's a place where God lives. It's a place where God walks with us. It's a place where God changes us. All these wondrous things happen within the kingdom of God. But Joshua was another name for who? Anybody know? Jesus. It's another name for Jesus. Actually, same name. So Joshua brings them into the land, allows them to be established. The people are excited. They see miracles of God after miracle of God. They're like, oh my goodness, everybody gets their own piece of land. These slaves who had never known or owned anything, suddenly they have their own large plots of land. They're established as tribes, 12 different tribes spread throughout this land of Israel as we know it now, the nation of Israel, and they become an established nation. Now, the problem is they don't follow all the directions of God and they don't get rid of all the people that are in this nation situation. And therefore, that sets up for them a group of various tribes that begin to fight against Israel to take back the land. Does it sound like Palestine and Israel going on here? They're fighting to get back the land. They say, no, this is our land. And Israel is saying, God gave us this. God said it's ours, therefore it's ours. And the fighting continues on back and forth because the people didn't follow all the directive of God. Joshua dies. Caleb, who is kind of his right-hand guy, dies as well. And we find ourselves in a bit of a quandary. Suddenly there is no truly powerful leader. Nobody has been set up. Now, when Moses dies, he sets up Joshua to come in and give direction. When Joshua dies, he sets up Caleb to continue to give direction. When Caleb dies, there's nobody. They're not sure what to do. God has laid out a clear directive in terms of prophets, priests, and what we refer to as judges. And Caleb is somewhat the, the first judge. And the judge is just what we would call a judge today. The judge is the person who is established for the entire nation, for the people to come to, to find out how to handle their problems and their struggles, and to give general guidance 
to Israel as a whole. Now, this is the wonderful thing about Israel. Israel has no taxes. How would you like to live in Israel? See, no taxes. It's a wonderful thing. The reason they have no taxes is because they have no king. Because there's no king, there's no government as such. It's a theocracy, not a monarchy. It's a theocracy. It is a nation that is to be guided and led by God. In fact, God says, this is the special thing about you. You're different from all the other nations in that I will lead you, I will protect you, I will guide you. And he sets up blessings and curses. As long as you do this, I will bless you, I will overwhelm you with blessings. But if you don't follow the law and the directives... If you don't love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus tells us is what the law is all about, then curses will come into your life. And I'll allow the Philistines to come in and test you and work on you and bring destruction to your nation. So that's a little bit of the picture we're going to deal with today. should be fun, right? Now, before we do that, though, let's have a little bit of fun. I want a little trivia here for you. It's just a kick, and every now and then I like to do these kinds of things. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Anybody know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? It's the easiest one. Psalm 119. Yeah, just look at it, folks. You go, oh my goodness, this thing goes on forever. Yes, it does. It follows the Hebrew alphabet uh, all the way from Alpha to Omega. So that, that is what Psalm 19 is. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible. What's the shortest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 117. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 117. Okay, now see if you can guess this. What's the center chapter in the Bible? Psalm 118. Yeah, you got it. Go, what? How did that happen? There are 594 chapters before Psalm 118 and 594 chapters after Psalm 118. This is the entire Bible, New Testament. You go, who put this thing together? I don't know. Interesting. Now, what is the center verse of the entire Bible? Psalm 118, verse 9. Let's see if we've got that one. Read it with me. Better to trust in the Lord than to trust in kings. Center verse of the entire Bible. Today we're going to talk about kings and kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms. That's the issue we want to speak to. Do we desire to have a theocracy or a monarchy? That was the cry and the struggle of Israel. In Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, it says this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my promises, my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be special. You'll be marvelous. You'll be incredible. All all of creation will look upon you. All the people will look upon you and call you blessed. What, a, what an incredible nation you have. And that is the direction and desire of God. However, Israel begins to go through a struggle after Caleb dies. And they set up a group of guys called the Judges. And you guys have the book of Judges, okay? Now, see if you can find in your Bible the book of Judges. So you look in the front. I always tell people, if you don't know what you have, just look in the front. It's got a little table of contents. Look at it. It'll give you, give you the page. It won't be the same as mine because you walk through it. It's called Judges start on page 213. Okay? I don't know where yours starts at. It just happens where it starts on mine, pages 213. So that's the beginning of the book of Judges. Okay? The book of Judges is 21 chapters. And it's about a group of men and one woman who are directed by God to give guidance 
and understanding and wisdom to Israel using the law that God has provided and the system that he has set up with help from the priests who provide the sacrificial system for all of Israel. Okay, we begin, we've seen some of these pictures and ideas. We've got a sacrificial system. You're going to the priest, take care of your sins, recognize what's going on. Yom Kippur, which takes place at the end of the year or the first of the year in terms of, as we said, there are two years in Israel. I know this is a weird thing, but they kind of have a, uh, what we refer to as a fiscal year and a regular year. And they actually act that way. There's a fiscal year and a regular year. And so there are two different New Year's and two different end-of-the-year periods. Yom Kippur is one of them, okay? And the other one is the Passover, which is, the, those are both first-of-the-year situations. Okay, enough said on that. Get a hold of that tape. You'll go back to that, that CD to get an understanding of those things, okay? There are six major judges. These judges are these kind of uh, quasi-kings, you might call them. They're God's representative you know, aside from the priest to give direction to the civil situation and the moral situation that's taking place in Israel. Six major judges are talked about in this. And each of them, interestingly enough, comes from a different tribe of Israel. So different tribe, judge coming from each different tribe. So there's one from this tribe, another from this tribe. So each time a judge is brought up, interestingly enough, God seems to bring them up through a different tribe of Israel. We know some of them. One is Gideon. Many of you have heard of Gideon. He was one of the judges that God pulls out and establishes. Another one that we know of is a man called Samson. You guys remember Samson? Okay, remember him because he reminds of us ourselves too much. Uh, some of you guys there, in terms of our struggle uh, with dealing with the issues of lust and things that are taking place in that. The judges tend to follow a cycle. Okay, they follow a cycle. I want you to help you with it. The cycle follows this pattern. Israelites sin. Okay, they go against God's directive. They blow it entirely. God punishes them by sending an enemy to oppress them. Remember, blessing and curse. Curse is coming. They serve the enemy for a number of years. So they find themselves under the direction of an enemy for a number of years. They cry out to God, say, God, help us. Please forgive us for what we've done. And God sends a deliverer, referred to as a judge, to free them. Get the story of Gideon, get the story of Samson. You begin to understand what's going on. You go, oh, each one of these judges are called by God. And then this judge conquers the entire enemy. He wipes them out. Kills the Philistines, takes care of the Canaanites, whatever it is, and Israel once again establishes a nation, and then they have peace for a period of time, usually 20 to 40 years. 20 to 40 years seems to be the standard period of time that goes on there. The problem is, with each cycle of judges, the judges get worse and worse and worse until you get to Samson, who's really a mess. Okay? This guy is a mess coming into place here, and he's struggling in terms of his own life, but he's the judge of Israel. All of that gives us a, begin to, a picture of what's going on. It's been 400 years they've been established in the land, 400 years, almost the same amount of time as they were slaves over in Egypt. They find themselves in Israel now after 400 years, and they're struggling with identity, with who they are, with what they're all about. So the closing verse of Judges turn to the very last chapter, chapter 21. Verse 25. You guys just walked through the entire book of Judges. Good job. I went so hard, huh? Nothing to it. So 21, verse 25. This is probably the key verse. It's actually stated twice in the book of Judges. But we're going to use it 
because it's the last time it's stated for the last verse, and it pretty much pulls it all together, the Israeli thought concerning the judges. You ready? Here it goes. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, Read that with me. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we see the problem with Israel. There's no one willing to follow the direction of any government structure or any person that God has set up. They're not following the prophets. They're not following the priests. And they're definitely not going to follow the judges. So... God has up this structure. He says, look, you guys have to understand something. I'm the king. This is a theocracy. I set up a structure for you to follow. I've given you everything you need. You just need to follow it. Each one of you individually need to follow it. You know the difference between right and wrong because I've shown you. You know how to deal with your sins because I've shown you. You know have a relationship with me because I've shown you. But the people resist. They struggle because they say we have nobody to keep us in line. We have nobody to take care of these issues in our life. So the conclusion is, if we just had a king, he would tell us what to do. King Obama will tell us what to do. (laughs) King Bush will tell us what to do. Whatever we we can do. If just we can get the right guy, everything will come together and life will be good. Will be taken care of. And God is saying over and over and over. You understand the problem. But you're not dealing with the solution. That will never provide you with a great solution. You will only find the right solution. When you begin to respond to me. He set up a tabernacle. He set up an ark. He set up all these things to clarify. I am the one and only king. However, the people now are more tribal than national. You get that? Twelve tribes. Think of states. Twelve states. Each state has kind of established their own guy that's giving direction over the tribe. They respond to him and kind of him alone. So as a nation, they're scattered. It's like, I don't want to deal with the Philistines when they attack you. I want to deal with the Canaanites when they attack you. It doesn't matter. This is all about me. That's what's happening with the tribal structures. All the tribal elders get together. All 12 get together and they say, we've got to do something about this. Something's got to happen. I think I know what to do. And they conclude, we're going to get a king. We're going to get a king. Now, that's the big picture of what's happened here. However, God knows this is going to happen. He gives them one last big shot. And he puts together and calls a particular person by the name of Samuel. Can you say Samuel with me? Samuel. Okay, now you got Samuel's a prophet and he's the last judge of Israel. We don't know that at the time. We just know he's a judge here. So Samuel comes up. He's a prophet called by God and he's a marvelous guy. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19. You can turn to 1 Samuel now because we're going to kind of walk through these things as you're flipping through your Bible. Oh, good. I'm going to walk all the way through. It's fairly easy. 1 Samuel 3:19 says this. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. Do you know what that means? 
Neither do I, okay? He let none of his words fall to the ground. He's saying whatever he said was held in high esteem. Whatever he said seemed to be the right thing. Even when it appeared that he'd say something to be dumb, it turned out to be really smart. Okay, so he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel recognized Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. Now, what he's saying is this. It wasn't Samuel speaking when he spoke. It was God himself speaking through Samuel. This guy was committed. This guy was totally anointed by God. And all of Israel, all 12 tribes knew it, understood it, and responded to it. He's God's last chance to retain the position of judges, to retain a theocracy of Israel, because he knows the people are going to want and call for a king. So he brings Samuel in, and Samuel, instead of leading the people into battle against the Philistines, who are now the group that are attacking them, instead of going, okay, I'm going I'm to grab Samuel, he's going to get out there, he's going to take out his sword, he's going to cut them all up, and he's going to do the Samson jawbone thing. You ever think about that? Samson killing a thousand people with a jawbone. That's just weird, okay? That's all there is. That's just odd. What's going on? There must have been one big jaw going on. But... In this case, Samuel comes in and it says he begins to pray. So they go out to attack the Philistines and he prays and it says God speaks. And there's a huge thunder. There's an earthquake. Did you guys feel the earthquake this week? Earthquake, thunder, big huge stuff. The Philistines go, we're in trouble. God's on their side. And they literally start falling down dead. Okay? Israel wipes them all out and they go, Samuel is the man. No question about it. And they're all united under Samuel. Now it goes on to say, so everybody's excited about Samuel. And he established something I've got to throw on the way. Ebenezer. You know what an Ebenezer is? Okay, it's the word for rock of help. And so we kind of have this, says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And so that's one of those oddball quotes that people get to you and say, what is an Ebenezer? Ebenezer is simply the Hebrew word for rock of help. They should have translated it. Here I raise my rock of help, but whatever. They went Ebenezer on us. Okay? So we got, oh, that's what he meant by Ebenezer. And that's talking about how God gets in the middle of the battle and provides clarity and direction and everything needed for Israel to win the battle. Now, Samuel, though, is so busy taking care of the needs of the nation. He's got a picture of He's running back and forth. He's running to this tribe. He's running to that tribe. He's running to this tribe. His own sons begin to fail. In fact, then he talks about him getting married. Suddenly he shows up his sons and the people said his sons are corrupt. His sons are nothing like Samuel at all. And the elders come up to Samuel as he's getting old and they say, you know something, the judge thing, if it was going to be Samuel, we're all for it, but there are no more Samuel because Samuel says, my sons are not going to become the new judges. The elders go, oh, no, they don't. It's like me saying, you know, I've decided that Johnny and David are going to be the new pastors of the church. <laughs> not exactly. I'm sorry. You know, I say, oh, some of you say, well, that'd be okay. You don't know him that well. Okay, so <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have great sons, they're wonderful sons, but they're not ready to take on that role, okay? So that's why we're bringing up Eric to do that. You go, okay. So this is what happens. Samuel says, yeah, my sons are going to do it. They're great, they're wonderful. All the people going, no, they're not, Samuel. Your sons are a mess. And the quote is like this. They say, hey, you are old. Don't go there. 
You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now I want you to notice them. First of all, they want him to appoint the king. They recognize the authority that God has given him, and they're saying, Samuel, we need you to put it together. We know that God has told us we don't need a king, but we really think we need to change the whole thing. We, we really need a king, and you need to be the guy who establishes it. And Samuel is heartbroken. He's like, how can this be? How can this happen? Why do they they do this? Why aren't they willing to follow God's direction? And he goes to God in prayer and he says, God, I am so sorry. I've blown it. I can hear his prayers. My sons are not what I, I thought they should have been. And it's my fault. I didn't establish the judges the way you wanted them to be established. And now all of Israel is crying out for a king. I, 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 please forgive me, God. And God says, hold it. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as leader of their lives. And... They're choosing to do this despite all that I've provided for them. But regardless, I'm going to give them what they want. But first you go back to them and tell them all the negatives. So Samuel goes back and says, look, if you get a king, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have the big T. We know what the big T is? Taxes. You're going to have taxes. He goes for the money. Good juggler. Ah, taxes. Oh, forget it. No, they go, we don't care. We'll pay the taxes. But he's going to come in and he's just going to be brutal. He's going to take your sons. He's going to make them part of his army. And they're saying, that's okay. We still need a king. But, 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 but. He goes, all these negative things about a king. They say, it doesn't matter. We want to be like all the other what? Nations. We want to be just like them. We don't want to be different. We don't want to be unique. It's just too hard. So Samuel says, okay, I'll do what you asked me to do. It's been 400 years, and you're ready for a change. So it says Samuel then begins to look into the crowd. He looks off there, and he sees someone who is head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. It says, then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? So we could go into the story. He recognizes Saul as the one that God has called at this point in time to give leadership to be the king over all of Israel. He calls him out of the crowd, brings him out to the front, anoints him in front of all the people of all the tribes, says, now you must follow him as king. You got it? And all the elders of the 12 tribes, yes, we will follow him. We will follow his direction. We will follow his guidance. And Saul, who actually this time is a very humble guy, is struggling with this calling that God has given him. But he takes on the calling, and then he finds himself being called to go out and to fight against the Philistines. He gathers together the army, goes out, fights against the Philistines, and he wins an incredible victory. At the end of this victory, comes back, they go on, they have another fight, they have another victory that takes place. And this victory is a phenomenal one, and Saul is beginning to think he's pretty good stuff. But God is very specific on this victory, and he says, look at Saul, when you get there, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make sure that you destroy all of the good stuff. I want all the good lamb, I want all the beef, all the mutton, all the, all the meat destroyed. I want you to, just, I want you to 
Get rid of it entirely. You don't get anything on this. He gets very, very specific in terms of what he's supposed to do. Saul says, no problem, Samuel. I got it. He goes out there, fights, and he doesn't do what God tells him to do. Samuel shows up a little later, and Saul says, boy, it's great to have you here, Samuel. I've done everything God asked me to do. It's a wonderful day. And Samuel goes, what's this bleeding of lambs I hear? What's this mewing of cows? They're all supposed to be dead. What's going on? And Saul says, well, you know, the people were, you know, they, they really wanted this stuff, and it seemed like kind of foolish, and we got it all. And he begins his tirade, and Samuel says, he gives this great quote, does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And the reason he does that is because he tries to bring forth a bunch of sacrifices at the end to throw before God. And Samuel says, doggone it, you're not obeying God. And he says, this day God has taken from you the kingship. Because you're unwilling to follow God's directive. You're unwilling to take on the attitude that God desires for you to have. You're unwilling to be humble before him. And Saul recognizes that God has rejected him. But he doesn't give up his kingship. This is a very interesting element, by the way. He doesn't give up his kingship. He's too prideful now. He won't accept it. And instead, he holds on to that for 28 more years. 28 years, he will continue to be the king of Israel, despite the fact that God has removed the anointing upon his life. And in the end, he takes his entire family to death with him. And he loses in the final battle that he fights to a group we refer to as the Philistines. Who were also the first group of people that began to fight that he finally defeated with the help of a young man who came into the battle and took out their biggest warrior whose name was Goliath. And this young man was the man whom God had called to be the new king. And I guarantee you, at that point in time, Saul saw him, saw him recognize it, and he knew exactly what God had done. But he refused. He refused to yield to him. Instead, he put him under his direction so that he could begin to try desperately to stop David from being the man that God wanted him to be. So 28 years later, 28 years later, David is chosen to be the king. And there's an interesting verse in 1 Samuel 13, 14 that tells us why David was chosen. And it goes through some interesting processing that we got here where it says that, that Samuel, again, after he leaves the king, remember he's over here with, with Saul, he leaves him. Saul has been rejected. He's a little frightened of him at this point in time. He says, you know, God, I can't anoint anybody else because Saul will kill me. And God says, look, we're just going to do this in secret. It's okay. He meets with the pectoral family called Jesse's family. It's the family of Jesse. That's the father. And he sees all of his sons. And he walks through. We've all heard this story, right? He's got all these wonderful sons who are tall and good looking. And he says, it must be Eliab. He's the tallest, best looking guy. You know, he says, oh, that must be. It's kind of like Ian here, you know, big, tall strong-looking guy, and he goes, yeah, that's me, new king. And he goes, this must be the guy. And he says, no, that's not him. And he says, well, there's nobody else here. You know, there's one other one. He says, do you have another son? Yes, he does. He's out taking care of the sheep. Bring him in. David comes in. He recognizes him as the one called by God. And he says, he's a man after God's own heart. He uses that particular terminology. He's a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And then, as we move a couple of chapters down 
in verse, chapter 16, verse 7, God says this. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I rejected that one. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Samuel anoints this 12-year-old boy as the new king of Israel. And God says, at that point in time, the Spirit of God falls upon him. And from this point on, he has inherited the Spirit of God through that anointing that God has given him. And he is God's king to Israel, whether the people realize it or not. From this day forth, David is now the king of Israel. But it will be 28 years before he is officially recognized and anointed by both Israel and Judah as the honored and directed king of all kings in relationship to Israel. And David will be this remarkable, remarkable king who goes through all these trials and struggles and difficulties for the next 28 years. But through all the tests, through all the trials, he stands firm. He refuses to kill God's anointed, which you would think, oh, he's not even the anointed one anymore. You're the anointed one, David. David refuses. He says, no, as long as he is recognized as God's man, nobody is allowed to hurt him or to touch him. David continues with this wondrous response to God until finally in 2 Samuel 2, 4, and 5, 3, he is set up and anointed as king over Judah and over all Israel. Wow. Finally, he's put into place. David finds himself as the new king, and there we are. So now we've done all this stuff. We got to the king. Yay! We finally got to the king, Lee. It's about time. Well, we did the whole book of Judges, First and Second Samuel. Come on, guys. So we're here. He becomes the king, and then it has these great terminology that's used. It says, David inquires of the Lord. And David begins to build the kingdom, and he does an incredible job because he sees it not as his kingdom, but as God's kingdom. So David is the first king who recognized it's still a theocracy. It's still a theocracy. This is God's kingdom, not mine. And so over and over as you walk through David, it says David would inquire of the Lord. How should I do this? David would inquire of the Lord. How should you do that? Even in the place where he sees this marvelous this marvelous place that he's living in. So he's got this glorious, glorious, wonderful palace. And he says, I'm in this palace. Israel is a phenomenal kingdom now. We have more money than we know what to do with. And God is still living in the tabernacle. What are we going to do? And so he says, he calls Nathan, who's the prophet at that time because Samuel has died. Calls Nathan and says, Nathan, I want to build a temple for God, a marvelous thing, far bigger and better than my palace. And Nathan says, wow, that's such a great idea, David. Go for it. Give me five. And they high five each other. The prophet walks up, goes back home, and God says, hold it just a minute. Nathan, go back to David and tell him, you're not allowed to do this. Because although you're a man after my own heart, you're a man of blood. You got the kingdom through destroying people's lives, through killing hundreds, even thousands of people. And because of that, David, I can't allow you to be the man who's going to build my temple. What I will allow is I'm going to allow your son to do it, who's yet to come. Interesting enough, a son who would be the result of horrible response 
by David when he takes his eyes off of God's kingdom and he begins to see it as his. He's walking on the palace roof. It says it's a time when all the other kings went out to war. And he's walking on the palace roof because he's still there and they're out warring. And he looks over there and he sees this beautiful woman who's bathing on top of her place. And in his heart he says, I have to have her. And he brings her to his house and he has sexual relations with her. And she becomes pregnant. And her husband, who has gone off to war where the king is supposed to be, is called back by David and he tries to deceive him. Go in with your wife, have sex with her, have a great time so that you'll think it's your child. And this will be all done and over with. It's my first chance. I can lie. I can get away with this. But he's too good of a man. He won't do it. Instead, he stays in the palace. He said, I won't go there because all the other men who are fighting the war and struggling, it would be wrong for me to respond this way. So David, the next time, gets him drunk. He said, it gets him so drunk he can hardly stand. But he still holds on to his integrity. David's dying. I can't believe this. What have I done? But he can't control himself. He's thinking, I am the king. After all, I'm the big wig. I'm the man. I can't let everybody know what's gone on. So he sends him back into war. And he tells his general, put him in a spot where he'll get killed. And he does. And he dies. And David does the honorable thing. He takes Bathsheba in, marries her, <laughs> becomes part of his group. And he tries to hide it from everybody. The general knows something up, not exactly what. Bathsheba has this child. The child is born. Nathan comes to him, the prophet says, God knows what was going on all along. You can't hide from God. You knew you were wrong. You knew what you did. And now you're going to have to pay for it. Your son's going to die. He's going, no, take, take my life. Do, don't, don't take. He says, no, your son will have to die. And so David doesn't eat, doesn't drink. For days and days he's fasting. He's crying out for God. God, please hear me. I know I did wrong. Please forgive me. And the servants are astounded by his, his incredibly strong emotional re- response to this situation. And the baby dies. And they think, we can't tell David, he's just, he's so distraught. And David sees him and he looks up and he says, what's going on? Did the, did the child die? And they said, yes. He says, okay, then it's over. And he gets up and he cleans himself up and he goes back and he says, they said, what's going on? He says, well, as long as there was a chance, God's mercy could come and the child might have lived. But now that he's dead, he's dead. There's nothing I can do. I can't bring him back to life. And from this point on, David's kingdom is corrupted. Not entirely, because David is a man after God's own heart. And he desires to do the right thing. He does everything he can, but his sons, his daughter, his legacy is never what it could have been. And God establishes Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, the woman who he had sex with before, as the son who would reign the next stage in the kingdoms for himself, as a declaration to David of the wrong he had done. He never forgot. He never overcame. 
and his life is never what God wanted for him. Because he failed in the test that God had for him. Rob, I want you to come up right now. He failed in the test that God desired to bring into his life so he could become stronger. He had an opportunity and he blew it. I want to say this to David's credit. God loves David so much. And David did so well all the time in persecution and in struggle. He never, ever failed in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of pain and wounded and all these things. David stands firm. He does the right thing every single time. But when prosperity came, that was the time that David couldn't handle it. And for many of us, I would cry out to you and I say, I see, I see pastor after pastor and leader of ministry after ministry failing and falling, not while he's in the midst of struggle and difficulty, but when prosperity comes their way. It's more often than not, not persecution that destroys us. It's prosperity that brings destruction into our life. Failure happens when we fail to see God's purpose and God's direction. And instead of focusing on His kingdom, we begin to focus on our own. And we lose sight of that which is truly important, of that which we are called for, of that which God set us aside for, that we might be His representative in this world at this time, just as David was His representative then. And perhaps the biggest blessing in our life is the result of God choosing not to give us what could very well tend to destroy us. Perhaps the biggest blessings that God gives us are trials and tests that build character. Because I guarantee you one thing, because I know David's heart. David would have loved to have died in the last battle. Honorable and loyal to God. But instead... In the time of prosperity, he fell. Listen to this song that reminds us that perhaps, perhaps what you think are trials and difficulties and struggles that God is hindering you with are actually the blessings that God wants to pour into your life. Jesus said the kingdom of God is near. In the midst of that, he reminds us the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of self. It's a kingdom in which God reveals himself to us on a consistent and a regular basis. The kingdom of God is among us and even within us. It was Oswald Chamber who said this, a saint is not to take the initiative towards self-realization, but toward knowing Jesus. A spiritually vigorous saint never believes that his circumstances simply happen at random. Nor does he ever think of his life as being divided into the secular and the sacred. Wherever you are, there is a purpose that God has in mind for you to accomplish. The question in our life is, will we allow God to accomplish it at the place that he has put us at? The kingdom of God is here. It's at your home. It's in your business. The question is, will you walk through the door? Will you watch God at work or will you continue to demand that you yourself take control and determine what will be the outcome? Many of you have incredible jobs. And I want to tell you this. 
you didn't earn that position on your own. You're not that good. You're not that capable. I am here because of the grace of God. I'm not that good. I'm not that capable. But God is more than able. And that is his cry to each of us. He says, I've placed you where you are so that you might reveal the kingdom of God in your midst. That kingdom is wherever the king's sovereign will is carried out. Everywhere that his subject do his will. And you live in the kingdom where you allow God's will to be carried out in your life if you will choose to. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God is working and God is testing just as he did the nation of Israel. And he set up the Philistines and he set up the Canaanites. And it says, I will use them to test the Israelites and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord. And he's doing the same thing to you. He's doing the same thing to you. He's saying, how will you do in your kingdom? Will you allow my kingdom to be portrayed there? Or will you choose instead to lie and to cheat and to steal, even subtly, so that you can get your own way? A spiritual saint. We don't believe in happenstance. We believe it's God in every circumstance. Every circumstance. So don't forget who your king is. We're going to have our people come up and they're going to take an offering as soon as this particular clip finishes out. Because I want us to see this. It's a powerful statement reminding us of our king. So when it ends, they're going to take the offering right now as that goes on. I want you to listen and I want you to write down your prayer requests. I want you to think, what is God asking me to do? When the clip ends, we'll take the offering and we'll hear our final song. Let's watch it.